0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore Adorno, Elsa Frankel-Brunswick, Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford. With an introduction by Peter E. Gordon What makes a fascist? Are there character traits that make someone more likely to vote for the far right? The authoritarian personality is not only one of the most significant works of social psychology ever written, it also marks a milestone in the development of Adorno's thought, showing him grappling with the problem of fascism and the reasons for Europe's turn to reaction. Over half a century later, and with the rise of right-wing populism and the re-emergence of the far-right in recent years... This hugely influential study remains as insightful and relevant as ever. This new edition includes an introduction by Frankfurt School scholar Peter E. Gordon and contains the first-ever publication of Adorno's subsequent critical notes on the project. The Authoritarian Personality by Theodore Adorno, Elsa Frankel brunswick Daniel J. Levinson, and R. Nevitt Sanford. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. November 30th marked the 20th anniversary of the WTO protests in Seattle. It was a critical moment for the U.S. left that united labor, environmentalists, and radicals of all stripes in mass action. A powerful moment in a global justice movement that sought to make sense of neoliberal globalization in the wake of the Cold War. In the U.S., however, the movement as we knew it more or less came to an end when Bush launched the War on Terror. But, as I wrote in a recent essay for Jacobin, today's socialist revival nonetheless, in some way, began that day in Seattle because the alter-globalization movement was a critical experience for the U.S. left as we have slowly, in fits and starts, got our shit together Under Daunting Circumstances. In case you missed it, I'll include a link to that essay in the show notes. We are also nearing the 20th anniversary of Empire, a book by political theorists Michael Hart and Antonio Negri. It's a classic work for that period's left, which struggled alongside those movements to make sense of a changing world system in capitalist order, trying to find a way forward across incredibly uncertain terrain. Most recently, the pair published their latest book, Assembly, which argues, among other things, that the changing organization of work under capitalism provides new opportunities for resisting capitalism and then overcoming it. Today, I'm discussing assembly with Michael Hart. And I'll also include a link to their essay, Reflecting on the 20th Anniversary of Empire, published in the New Left Review, in the show notes. What can we learn from capitalism's reliance on the exploitation of the common, our common natural resources, and also our common intellectual labor that, for example, creates the value that big technology companies make into profit? How does the profit made from our collective clicks on Google fit into a system that also exploits people in new but still very familiar ways in call centers and on massive factory floors in Shenzhen? What is new about capitalism today, and what's just more of the same, however newly disguised, brutally intensified, or geographically rearranged? Does capitalist production today have a more intensely social character than it has in the past? And if so, what does that mean for how we do anti-capitalist struggle? We do try to define terms, but this is a densely theoretical episode. Don't hesitate to hit that 15-second rewind button if you need to take a second listen. When I was listening to the draft of this interview, I had to do just that multiple times just to make sure I understood my own questions. Before we get this thing started, we can do the dig because you, our listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. You listen to this podcast because we provide complex and in-depth left-wing analysis with the smartest left-wing thinkers around on everything and everywhere. To do that, I spend a huge amount of time reading and preparing notes and questions ahead of each interview. Typically, I write out at least 3,000 words worth of notes every single week. I can only put everything into this podcast and pay everyone who helps make it Because you, people like you, listeners, support us. Plus, we have left-wing books to send you in the mail as a token of our gratitude. One of those books is my own book, which will be out in just one month. All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. Contribute what you can at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, so I recently, as I just mentioned, finished my book. And after it comes out on January 14th, I'll be on a book tour all over the U.S., starting with a book launch at Verso's Brooklyn Loft on January 24th. More dates and details are coming soon, but so far I can say with some confidence that I'll be going to New York, Philly, Baltimore, D.C., Providence, Chicago, Minneapolis, New Haven, Boston, Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, El Paso, Albuquerque, Tucson, Phoenix, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Olympia, and Seattle and quite probably more. As you can see, for obvious reasons, I'll be hitting the borderlands hard. Stay tuned for dates and locations, and please do reach out if there are events you'd like me to do while I'm on the road, or if you'd like to have me out somewhere. But the point I actually really wanted to make here is that between finishing my book and starting that book tour, I found myself with something unusual which is a bit of free time at the end of the workday, given that for these brief months, I have found myself with just one full-time job. This job, running the dig. And so naturally, I quickly found a way to fill up almost all of that free time by volunteering for the Bernie campaign. Bernie has a really great shot of winning Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, California, and many other states, too. He really and truly can win the whole thing. And looking back at where the U.S. left was 20 years ago in Seattle, this is all still very entirely unreal for me, in a a good way, obviously. We could have a socialist candidate pledging a Green New Deal defeat the most anti-immigrant president in living memory, thanks in significant part to Latino voters." Many of you, of course, may be feeling quite down today after what happened in the UK, and with good reason. Neoliberalism has empowered nationalist fanatics who it won't be easy to defeat. But the left remains the only force that can not only defeat the right but also eliminate the conditions that nurtured its rise. The radical center helped make this crisis. It remains our job to solve it. There will be a lot of debates over Labor's Brexit strategy, and we'll likely get into that in a future show. But for me right now, it seems that either way, whatever Brexit strategy Corbyn had adopted, that Brexit likely made this election unwinnable for Labor. Fortunately, we have no Brexit in the U.S. We have Donald Trump as an incumbent in the White House. What's more... Boris Johnson has no mandate for anything but Brexit. Labor's agenda remains popular. And Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and momentum have built the party that can resist Johnson's government and then, next time, beat it. What's more, Bernie, for a variety of reasons, is way more popular than Corbyn as a person. I love Corbyn, but that is a fact. And so, for my U.S. listeners... Stay focused. Bernie has a very good shot at winning this nomination and then defeating Donald Trump. What I've been doing with my so-called free time is helping to organize a grassroots campaign for Bernie in Rhode Island. Because our primary is late and our state is tiny, the official campaign won't get here in a big way until a long time from now. So we're doing it ourselves and we're organizing to get people up to New Hampshire to canvas and then we're going to hit the doors in southeastern Massachusetts Attleboro Fall River New Bedford just across the state line from Providence and then we're going to win Rhode Island and we're doing this mostly on our own we're not the official campaign. We're an ad hoc group of Bernie supporters receiving just a little bit of help from the official Bernie campaign because that campaign is understandably dedicating its energies elsewhere for the time being. And so I'm telling you all of this for two reasons. First, if you live in Rhode Island and want to get involved, email me, daniel.denver at gmail. But for most of you who do not live in Rhode Island, I just want to emphasize what I'm personally learning from this experience, that this campaign is not a spectator sport, We all need to volunteer. One easy way to do that is to phone bank. It's super easy, and you can sign up to do it right on the campaign website from your own home and just start making the calls. And if you do live somewhere like Rhode Island where there's not an official campaign operation in full swing, you can also do more than phone bank. You can just start organizing your state's Bernie campaign. Don't wait for the Bernie campaign to come to you. Start organizing now. Build your own campaign And get your state organized, so that when the official campaign does come, you have shit organized and already underway. Okay, enough on all of that. But one more quick note before we get started. I sound a little different in this interview, because I was conducting it away from my regular studio while traveling. I still sound intelligible and everything, but just a little different. Okay, Here's Michael Hart, who teaches political theory in the literature program at Duke University. His latest book, co written with Antonio Negri, is Assembly. Michael Hart, welcome to the dig.
1: Thanks. I'm glad to be with you.
0: You and Antonio Negri developed the Marxist argument that the organization of value-producing labor under capitalism contradictorily contains the conditions for worker emancipation from capitalism. Under industrial production, capitalism requires the mass cooperation of labor, which in turn creates the possibility that workers might cooperate without capitalists exploiting them. This was Marx's insight and also that of 19th century labor Republicans in the US, and and I'm sure others as well, you argue that today, the increasing social character of production under financial and neoliberal capitalism, capital's reliance on the exploitation of care work, digital labor, natural resources, the increasing emphasis on logistics and transportation and communication, the, the blurring of lines between working and non-working hours, that all of this opens new possibilities for radical emancipation because the increasing social character of production also requires that capital allow that production take place at a remove. This is a complex argument, but it's at the heart of, of the case you're making in your book. So, so to start, lay it out by, by way of providing some historical context. How, how is capitalism organized work and the production and extraction of value over time, and why does its present form allow for specific new forms of struggle and for new possibilities for a post-capitalist future?
1: You're right. That's a complicated argument, and you're right also that Tony and I aren't inventing this. This is this is Marx or Marx and Engels' um, core claim. You know that that capital creates its own gravediggers or that the same weapons that capital uses to exploit can be repurposed for liberation i mean you can any reader of the first part of the manifesto would uh, would get this message but it is something of course that one has to recognize in different in different historical periods or or as you're saying in different economic or economic relations yeah the social relations of different of different periods let me just try to give two indexes and maybe then we can go back and forth to figure out Yeah, how to work this out? Two axes of the of the contemporary, or two ways that Tony and I approach this. One is that, despite the fact that in the contemporary era, you know, in the post industrial or or changed industrial climate, despite the fact that there are ever increasing forms of exploitation and alienation, there are also conditions that make. The potential of labor more powerful, and I guess the two the two concepts we try to work with this is first social cooperation, and second the common. I like call the they might point in the same direction, but start with social cooperation. I, I'm not going to bring up Marx every every time we have a, we have a question, but but you know in um when Marx. You're welcome. First to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, when Marx refers to cap but to cooperation in, in chapter thirteen of volume one of capital it's for i mean part of the way cooperation functions in the industrial context is to increase the profitability you know the productivity of labor and and hence the product profitability but and and also Marx gives uh all of these quite let's say alluring phrases about the potential that cooperation uh in the industrial context gives for for human liberation but in the industrial context cooperation has to be created from above by capital and so the capital the capitalist acts like the general on the battlefield or like the conductor of the orchestra the capitalist has to bring workers together in the workplace provide them the instruments you know this is in the factory and then also discipline them to give them to force them how to to cooperate together so Tony and I are working from the hypothesis that in this in the contemporary Framework when the dominant forms of labor involve, uh, as you were saying, the, the, in some cases the production of affects, the uh, production of knowledges, production of intelligence, production of code. In these contexts, cooperation doesn't have to be imposed from above. In fact, even though labor is still exploited, even though surplus is still taken by the capitalist, the circuits of cooperation are instead constructed among workers themselves. Like, that would be the hypothesis. And so that, then, is one way of addressing the way you were formulating that, that the that today, ever more than before, the same um, weapons, or you could just say even the same social relations that are used to exploit, control, extract value— are the ones that could be used to organize differently. I know that was very abstract, one should probably give try to look in more examples, but let me try, if you have, if you have the patience for this, let me try the other, the other uh, way of coming at this. Through the notion of the common, many people in the last few years, many left analysts of, of the capitalist economy focus on different and, and really quite expanded notions of extraction as being central to capitalist production today. You know, so that, that you could start from the notion of extraction, thinking about, you know, this is, I learned about it first in an Argentinian context. They were talking about the reprimarization of the economy, so that the return to mining of metals, even monocultural agriculture is a kind of extraction, you know, thinking of, thinking of it this way. But today, as we know, there's there all kinds of other forms of extraction by which capital gains value. You know so an easy turn with this might be to think about the metaphor of data mining like it's interesting that you'd use that me- one would use that metaphor for it because in some ways it's the ki- same kind of extraction that you use to mine copper and coal, but it's really something different it's our data, which is similarly thought to be there for the taking, you know something that's free and open to all and then we could think of many other forms of extraction i mean the the even the the uh, accumulation a value of knowledge is construction of intellectual property. I would say even the, the extraction of value through certain for, forms of affect of production also involves a kind of extraction. And I guess where I'm going through in all this, like if you were to accept, because I think many, many argue, and it seems like an excellent argument about how extraction is becoming central in the capitalist economy. If you then take the next step and say, well, what is extracted? And so Tony and I would argue that in all of these cases... It's always the common which is extracted, or put it another way, if you look at what is extracted, it has the status of being common rather than being property. You know, that's what the way the way we're thinking about it. The common is really something that's not property, something that's shared that has relatively open access. And so if you recognize then in this extractive economy, and like I said, thinking extraction in a in an expanded way, that's not only referring to mining or agriculture, you know, thinking of it also in social terms, then you can recognize that, that in fact, the common is ever more present, vital in the, in the contemporary capitalist economy. It could be thought of as a kind of um, touchstone, or if you wanted, with military metaphors, something like a beachhead, like that because the common is ever more central to capital, it provides the potential for thinking about re-articulating or redeploying the common outside of that capitalist extractive network. So that's that's where I'd stop with the two with the two lines. In some ways, the increasing centrality and different origin of social cooperation in, in the forms of production today. And the other is the centrality of the common, meaning those forms of wealth that we share that is then extracted by capital. Both of those provide places to stand not only to critique the capitalist economy but to think differently about how social production can take place
0: well to bring it down to a more a more concrete level what are the the common features that make things like data real estate debt and fossil fuel all extractive and all extractive of the common
1: here's uh, let's let's try a couple examples when one thinks about like when one thinks about the production even think about gentrification let's let's try that i mean because gentrification of course in many respects is about speculation creation of fictitious values etc but a lot of what's happening in the urban environment that feeds real estate values is a kind of social construction of the city itself you know, like the city itself is, of course, much more than the built environment it's really a cultural milieu you know it's a, about social and cultural exchanges, and those are things that are created outside of property relations outside of is probably not the right word you know but the the construction of a neighborhood that that becomes appealing and that becomes uh, livable that's done through the kinds of Social efforts and social relations that, that are common that are that are, that create affective and social spaces that we that are open and that we share. So you could think so in some ways that that value that's created in the city, making a neighborhood attractive and livable and exciting, is then extracted. And because the real value we're creating then, it's extracted in the form of rents or real estate values or or gentrification. Thing, thought thought of more broadly. That would be, I mean, that's one example. I guess it's a particularly abstract one, although they're all pretty abstract, I must admit. You know, think about another way. Here's, here's the one that's not so much socially or affectively created. You know, when one thinks about the kinds of extraction that goes into producing value and property through genetic materials, or you could also think of your data being that way too. These are, these are in some sense, things that, I mean, they, they give the appearance of being natural, in the same way that the earth does. But I think that it's better to think of them as not only socially created, but things that are open to all of us or that are tendentially open and that then can be captured and extracted in the the form of property.
0: You also point to Google PageRank as an example of something that's produced by everyone— clicking on different links, placing links within different things. And part of the power of, of the way that sort of thing functions in the economy is that it invisibilizes the work that is quite literally and in, inarguably creating that value as labor. Even though I'm thinking about it as labor, it's still hard for me to actually internalize that it's labor because it doesn't feel like work but it is certainly labor that's producing value.
1: Right. I mean that's that's good and we don't have to, you know, to make such an argument. We don't have to deny that by using Google we we get something out of it or even that using social media is is uh, enjoyable, etc. What 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 <laughs> we should recognize <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Um but what we should recognize and this is where you started with it is that you know with with Google's PageRank, you know that could be a specific example. Or thinking about social media more generally, one shouldn't just say that they're, you know, that it's completely fictitious what their value is. I think that uh, one has to. It, it seems to be much more useful to recognize that the kinds of knowledge and intelligence of users is being harvested and made concrete in the platforms. Yeah. So the you know the Google PageRank. I'm no super specialist on this, but I think I, I know maybe what 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 one should know. And reading the original articles, you know, of the of the creators thinking about it, what they what they want to do is use people's web choices and and hence the kind of knowledge and intelligence that people are using, you know, of clicking on different sites, using that in order to rank the sites. And so it's freely given, of course, when we you know we as users are using it, but. It is a form of an expression of intelligence or of knowledge. I was a little tripped up, you know. I, I think you're right to call it, it labor. I mean, because if you if one wants to recognize that it's value creating activity, it's a little hard. You know, it's a little hard because we don't want to think of it. Uh, normally, when one talks about labor, you think about the kinds of efforts that you're constrained to do at work,
0: like dr- un- undesirable drudgery.
1: Well, and commanded. Work. I mean, I think what one drudgery, yes. commanded drudgery for a wage. You know, that's the thing. I think what one has to do, right. and that you're already doing comfortably, is following. You know, several decades of, you know, I think mostly of feminist work about this to recognize unwaged work as work. You know, so now I'm thinking of, of you know, starting in the 1980s. I think this directly follows from this. The domestic labor questions were about recognizing as labor and the production of value, unwaged work in the home. Even if it's done out of love, I mean, this was part of the debate in the 1980s among feminists about this, it's still, and even though it's unwaged, it still should be recognized as labor. So anyway, that's, I'm just thinking that the way you're, I think, quite comfortably talking about this kind of social media use or platform use as labor even though it's unwaged and even though it's not compelled is is super important because that's the way a lot of capitalist value works today
0: yeah no i i think the reason that made immediate sense to me is precisely thanks to reading about social reproduction and from feminist socialists and and that makes me wonder is, is this a to what extent is this a qualitative break from capitalism as it was before and to what degree is it more an in, intensification of a previously existing dynamic, though I guess an intensification of a previously existing dynamic could, at a certain point, become a qualitative break. Because, as you just mentioned, social reproductive labor, the often unwaged labor that creates society and creates the waged worker, has always been fundamental to capitalism.
1: That's true. And a number of the things that that Tony and I and, and others are talking about, it's a matter of forms of labor and value production that have existed previously, but now have become central in the capitalist economy. Like that's what, so I, I, there was some time ago, 20-ish years ago, Tony and I were, were trying to argue that what we were calling then immaterial labor, immaterial production has displaced industrial production at the center of the economy. And under that notion of immaterial, we were, we were trying to grasp together, it's an imperfect term, creates all kinds of problems that it and it solves others, we were trying to link together uh, cognitive labor, affective labor, like we've been talking about, image production, code, et cetera. And, and our argument wasn't that there's no longer people in factories. You know, there, there are today more people in factories globally than there were 50 or 100 years ago, but rather that the keystone of the capitalist economy, its center of gravity, has shifted so that whereas these kinds of immaterial production have always existed there was a period in which the industrial production was was primary what has shifted today is that that in some ways industrial production is secondary to this wide gamut of forms that don't result primarily in physical objects you know that's what we were trying to get with this immaterial production or in which uh, social relations are primary over physical goods
0: a question around Around this, um, you write, quote, labor becomes in cooperation increasingly abstract from capital. That is, it has a greater ability to organize production itself autonomously, particularly in relation to machines, but still remains subordinated to the mechanisms of the extraction of value by capital. My question is, how does that, something that, that I definitely agree is taking taking place, we've talked about a number of examples of it, but how does that square with what also seems to be this increasingly techno-tailorist domination in places like call centers and Amazon warehouses, something that I recently discussed with Emily Gundelsberger, and how does that also square with the fact that manufacturing still very much exists if in new geographic formations across sunbelts from from the U.S. to China? Because you write that at present capitalism is forced to choose between either more discipline of workers or granting them more autonomy, and that capitalists are compelled to choose more autonomy because if they don't, they risk undermining the basis of this entire system. But I guess my question is, is instead capitalism doing both things simultaneously, both both extending profit-making into these relatively autonomous social spheres while also intensifying traditional forms of exploitation. Um, I'm not sure if you saw this this review uh, of the book written by Samuel Chambers. And he, he noted that, for example, Apple's profits in 2017 were, at $48 billion, nearly double that of Facebook and Google combined. And he writes, quote, Where do those profits come from? How does Apple create value? Apple makes its money selling iPhones. Its iPhones are built in massive factories in China. What's your take on how on how these two different sorts of organization of productive labor are functioning, and, and what do you make of of the critique from, from Chambers? Yeah, I was
1: trying to think that in some ways for me, and at least in my mind, these are two separate questions, but let me try to get both. Of, I mean, one is about whether the labor arrangements are creating heightened forms of of control and surveillance or whether they're allowing for a possibility of a margins of of a certain kind of freedom and the other one is about the centrality of manufacture within the within the global within the global economy or global assembly line it's very it's very difficult to conduct the arguments through stock market prices of the different corporations and you know for many years people were saying well you know Amazon, is not making any money or, you know, the, the various corporations that are getting very high stock valuations, but are not actually pr- producing profits. You could either say I'm, I'm inadequate to, or I'm, or I'm reluctant to use that as the basis. Rather, that is the basis. I, I think I would tend to do it in a more qualitative way. you know, like, let me try, let me try this one. This is because this is the way I try to look at this shift, which is that during 150 years or so, it's not only that industry, in fact, industry was not where the majority of workers worked. You know, if you think back in the mid-19th century, when Marx and Engels and and everyone else is focusing on industry, the majority of the people, even in Europe, even in in England, the most industrialized were, were in the field. So it wasn't a quantitative question about where people are working, or even about, uh, quantitative, I would say, about the uh, amount of value. What was really happening from the mid 19th century to uh, the end of the 20th, or near the end of the 20th, was that the qualities of industrial production were progressively forced on all of the other sectors of production its machinery, its working day, its disciplinary techniques, you know, so that agriculture had to industrialize. And then not only other sectors, but even the family had to industrialize. Everyone's life had to industrialize, have the same kind of time discipline that the factory imposed. So the question then would be today is whether there are other sectors or other forms of production, not industry. You know, I think everyone would agree that we're no longer industrialized and it's no longer the factory that's ruling our lives in that same way. The question then for me is what are the forms of production Whose qualities are today being progressively imposed over other sectors, and that's where I think when one thinks about temporality, you know, like it's no longer factory time discipline, but rather a different kind of temporality, a temporality that has that's really a twenty-four-seven temporality of a non-one that doesn't even sleep, you know, that 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 has a different view, and that so that's where I would look for. The way of understanding, like rather than the than the stock market valuations, or even the profit margins of what forms of production are emerging as dominant within the economy,
0: if industrial production is still such a massive part of the economy, even if it's not visible to at least us sitting in certain parts of the United States in the same way, how is it that that this new emphasis on on social labor operating at a relative remove how is that how is that visible across the economy in the way that you described the rise of industrial production transforming the entirety of the con- economy in industry but also beyond universally
1: well i mean one one thing to say that that seems maybe maybe it's, it's an obvious thing is that when one thinks about the you know the auto industry and the um in the cities around Sao Paulo and Brazil today, it's not like it was in Detroit in 1930. You know, so that that industry has had to transform in even in subordinated areas so that the production of the iPhones that you were talking about earlier, they take place under different conditions than they would have previously. You know, so at least to go with my, I don't know if this is metaphor, the way of speaking of it of a few minutes ago is that industry and manufacturing in general has had to... Informationalize and integrate into the industrial circuits different kinds of technologies. You know, so that would be the first thing to recognize that it, it, when we talk about industry and manufacture today, it's not it's it's already been transformed the same way that agriculture 150 years ago was already being transformed by industrial methods. Like that would be uh, the first thing. But the second is, I mean, the important thing is we we shouldn't. We shouldn't forget that the global production scheme or even the, the, the global assembly line has extremely rigid and brutal divisions. You know, So when one thinks about the uh, forms and where industry is taking place in massive scales now, it's because those, those regions are subordinated. You so that, I guess what I'm just like the maybe we should start thinking about what the um, global divisions of labor and power are, and how they are reflected in, you know, whereas previously the points of industrial production of, of major industrial production were the pinnacle and privileged um, sectors of that of those hierarchies. Today, they they're certainly not.
0: One way to maybe. Re- reframe the question in that context of thinking about a world system that, that's profoundly hierarchical is, are the same possibilities for emancipation that the increasing social character of labor provides universally distributed across this unequal global system? Or is the differentiation of production matched by a differentiation of, of emancipatory potentiality
1: Right. I think you're exactly right in what you're pointing towards there. There there are at least in the ways that I'm talking about, there are certainly radical differences between different different regions, but also different sectors of the economy. You know, so when um it's true of course that that workers in call centers, to come back to the example you were pointing out earlier, workers in call centers do have let's say, I mean, they have to mobilize um, certain kinds of intelligence and knowledges and, and, and affective skills. But they're also it's also done in a way that it, that it can be very hard for them to organize together to use those skills differently. And it could be that, so it doesn't mean that those, any forms of affective and intellectual or cognitive labor immediately have, I, I guess I would have to say, those transformative potential. But but that doesn't mean I guess I, I would back up a minute. You know, what I think the way we have to conduct these sorts of this sort of theorizing is to try to recognize where the sources of an alternative could come from. It's, it's true, like you're suggesting, they're not going to be universally or homo- in a home spread in a homogeneous way. But the more important point, at least for me, is that they're not going to be immediately applicable. Like that, the, they require organization and a certain sort of transformation to be, to be implemented or or energized. So, so pointing to these forms of um, of social cooperation, as Tony and I do, also even po- pointing to these forms of the common that are all around us and integral to the capitalist economy. Pointing to them isn't isn't some sort of um, immediate revolutionary movement, really. It's rather trying to recognize the the raw materials from which organizing could lead to that.
0: One point that I found really interesting, you write that today's battle is over, quote, control of fixed capital. As production is increasingly socialized, fixed capital tends to be implanted in life itself, creating a machinic humanity and, quote, The productive social cooperation of workers endowed with fixed capital, although it yields the surplus it produces to capital, poses the potential for the autonomy of workers, inverting the relation of force between labor and capital. You write that Marx anticipated this and that it follows very much from his identification of fixed capital as objectified labor and... We often hear arguments about automation in terms of its, whether it's going to eliminate labor, but you instead are arguing that technology is, is transforming labor. What did Marx see taking shape in the 19th century, and how is what is happening today fundamentally different in terms of how humans are relating to machines and the political and social reality of that?
1: Well, first of all, the by with the notion of fixed capital, Marx is trying to point to the to the fact that machines in particular are always the result of human intelligence and labor. They're a kind of making concrete of the actions of human intelligence, you know, if you think about it that way, they're like taking past human intelligence and putting it and and, and making it into some. To uh, so something concrete, so sh- we should always think of it as that 's what he means by the fixed part. We should always recognize that it 's something that 's been appropriated, and in itself, this is the other um, attitude towards machine that 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 that, that Marx shared with several others, which is that that machines don't in themselves have to be used the way they are being used. There are of course some limits to to certain kinds of machines, but in general he he would say that the the even the fact of um Reducing human labor in itself is not a, it's not a bad thing. Yeah, to say it in more simple terms. Um, What's the bad thing is that these made concrete forms of human intelligence, you know, in the in 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 machines, that they are appropriated by the capitalists or by the rich. And so it's rather, you know, so that this notion about, I mean, the it's it's a it's a Marx slogan. Tony and I are also quite fond of it about thinking in terms of the reappropriation of fixed capital, like even that notion of the reappropriation. So it's been, it's already been, it's already been stolen. It's already been appropriated from us and we need to reappropriate it. You know, so in Marx's time in industrial time, it, it, it maybe had a, a, a clearer formulation. I mean, one thing about about the industrial machines, about the factory itself, and what would it mean then to reappropriate fixed capital? What would it mean to take over and and run the factory or or other machines? In our context, when we think about digital machines, it has a different and sometimes more complicated valence.
0: Because it's about the the emancipation of already existing social labor, not just the seizure of kind of what we would think of traditionally as machines though Though that too
1: that's but yes or or thinking about digital machines i i think you're pointing to something a little more complicated let me start with an easier one which is about <laughs> sure. algorithms i mean it's already plenty hard the one i'm trying i'm going to try here which is um you know i i was inspired by a a strike of Deliveroo drivers in Belgium. It was about two years ago where the drivers, you know, driving Deliveroo, driving uh, meals around and delivering them. What the, one of the demands of the strikers was that they wanted control of the algorithm. Like that they recognize the algorithm is what, the, and the algorithm is, is a machine. It's a form of fixed capital in the way we're talking now. And, it, and it's sort of the direct means of their exploitation, you know, the way the algorithm functions. And so demanding control of the algorithm is already a really interesting idea, you know, like for Uber drivers or, or even for Amazon workers. You know, what would it mean to recognize that, the algorithm as fixed capital? What would it mean to get control over it? You know, which it's not necessarily revolutionary, but it, it really, it's, it's, I think it's a, a, a correct identification of the immediate form of, of, their, of their exploitation. You know recognizing the algorithm. So that's one way of like l- making concrete sense out of this slogan to reappropriate fixed capital. Like recognize that algorithm as the machine, as the machine that is the yeah, you know, the things that have already been appropriated from us, reappropriating that and trying to put that to use. It's it's complicated, of course. You know, I, I maybe we're we can bracket that though, because I think just thinking of reappropriating the algorithm already can give you sort of a sense of what might be meant you're posing that then when you were just saying it even in more complicated terms like if we think about the ways that you know especially when we were talking about extraction before the ways that not only value but forms of intelligence have been have been appropriated from from social forms of production and made into something like machines how what would it mean to reappropriate those to gain control over those those machines this notion about the reappropriation of fixed capital it's not a it's not a solution it's a framework for thinking about the problem you know so it's one step before becoming a solution you know uh, it 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 poses a correct question you see that that actually i don't know if this is a uh, the kind of thing in the which you certainly don't need and i don't think your readers do either a kind of affirmation of theory or the kind of thing that theory can do in politics Often it's, it's not about finding solutions. It's about identifying what are the right questions. That's the kind of thing that one can expect from this kind of theoretical analysis. And then how to answer it, often that has to be done in the kind of theorizing that one does in practice, You know, that's done in movements, that's done in struggles.
0: Is there an aspect to this new machinic organization of labor that in your work not only identifies the algorithms as machines, which they are in a, in a fairly straightforward sense, you know, that I think Marx would have immediately understood. But also that if, if I read your argument correctly, it's that there's that there's a new a newly or at least intensified social and machine equality to labor itself. Is that right? Yeah. The
1: large scale question would be about trying to understand the not only the interaction between human and machine. I mean that would be it's 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 really uh the ways in which the human and the machinic are intertwined, like that would be the the abstract philosophical question, you know, around this. The way that we, and so Marx is actually helpful for this too. At least in, I, I just remember a passage in the Grundrisse where where Marx says, you know, the ultimate fixed capital is man, the the human itself. You know, thinking about the human intelligence as itself a kind of uh, accumulation. And becoming concrete of past forms of knowledge and intelligence, etc. I mean, thinking of ourselves as machinic—that's what one's forced to do in these discussions. So, on the one hand, you know, my temptation is as we're talking to think of it in the more philosophical sense. You know, asking that question about the machinic assemblages or the ways in which humans are intertwined with machines, etc. How our how our own thought processes are becoming extreme? You know, more machinic. But I'd rather switch, and I'm trying to think of how to do that. I'd rather switch the discussion to shift it to a more political, immediately political terrain. Like, What kind of implications does that have for the political questions?
0: How does this emancipation of already existing social labor, on the one hand, which, as we've discussed, you argue that the increasing social character of labor makes ever more possible, that on the one hand, and the reappropriation of fixed capital on the other— which is both things like algorithms things that look you know more more like what people traditionally think of as machines and it also includes the emancipation of already existing social labor because as marx and you all have noted there's a machinic quality to that labor itself so even this divide between the labor and and fixed capital is is more of a i don't know like a heuristic one but anyways my question is how does that all relate to our urgent need to radically redirect to what ends our labor is put, to redirect it democratically? Because ost- ostensibly, we don't just want to seize worker, c- worker control over the data emanating from our Facebook likes. You know, We, we want to, and need to, re- redirect our labor to socially useful and desirable ends and to cease producing harmful things like extraction, like fossil fuel extraction, and to minimize harmful forms of labor.
1: Yeah, I wonder if maybe if maybe at that point it's helpful because you know many of these things like we're already invited to do, and that's part of our if that's part of our enslavement. You know, we're 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 definitely invited to take control over our Facebook page and our likes, and we're invited to to do any number of these things. I think the the questions about social strategy or social planning might be helpful here. I mean that that what really is required are are democratic mechanisms for making making such strategic decisions. Like that's what I mean that's the part of the enslavement that capitalist society involves is not only at the individual scale the of the unfree nature of your time at work. It's also about and And maybe more importantly, about those large scale decisions like you were just saying about the ends to which our our labor are put, the kinds of things that we're we're being we're organizing and those are things I would say that don't happen at the or that don't can't generally be addressed at at the shop floor level, you know or that the tactical level of of questions about labor have to be addressed at at what is traditionally been thought of as the political level, meaning. Yeah, outside of the, the workplace or the immediate side of production, but organized politically in more general ways. I mean, so that's, I mean, it's at that that I think the, the contemporary social movements have been great at. I mean, it, there are all kinds of ways one can, can, one can criticize the, the, the whole range of movements since 2011. But one thing they've been great at is illuminating that level of social, what I'm calling social strategy i mean the ends to which all of our labors are being put and you know they it's not that they've provided ways of solving solving these things but that's they've illuminating that as the terrain a terrain if not the terrain on which we must fight
0: another point that i wanted to to cover in terms of the the sort of like broad contours of the political economy that that you make you draw on on schumpeter's original definition of of entrepreneur and to argue that there is in fact an actually existing form of autonomous entrepreneurial labor this this sort of like increasingly social labor that we've discussed and that neoliberalism is extracting value from that and that this quote capitalist entrepreneurship reveals the potential of the multitude i'm sure a lot of people have said this to you but at, at first blush it's it's surprising to see you reclaim entrepreneurialism, given that 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 the term, the word has become such an overwhelming tool of of neoliberal obfuscation, why why is it that you think that neoliberal entrepreneurship contains such a a massive and exploitable contradiction?
1: So let me step back for a minute. I mean, I think one of the things that the one of the ways that Tony and I have seen our task is to address our political vocabulary like that it's it has seemed to us that the primary components of our political of the of the emancipatory political vocabulary the revolutionary political vocabulary have all been corrupted and almost unusable you know so we've thought like the concept of democracy which we feel really dedicated to but has come to mean the opposite of what we thought it meant or or freedom itself we even try to work on the notion of love in this way. You know, so think about the concepts that have been useful on the left and to reclaim them because they've been stolen from us. That might be a way of saying it. Anyway, with I'd say with entrepreneurship it is exactly the opposite operation. It's not what this <laughs> that wasn't a that wasn't a revolutionary concept, but we think we can make use of it anyway. And so it's in some ways our attempt here is to to claim that concept for ours. I mean, what is a you know an enterprise you know it's a daring endeavor. You know Lenin's a great entrepreneur in that sense. Not not just Odysseus. Odysseus is they keep you know Homer keeps talking about his entrepreneurial characteristics, but it's that uh, strategic enterprise. That's that's partly it. So so that's you can see where we're trying to where we might have started in that attraction. But then coming to where you were just saying, I mean we've we tried to read in, in the history of the concept, and so Schumpeter no communist him, seemed a great source for this. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Um, And and what Schumpeter's trying—you know, there are all kinds of weird things that Schumpeter's bringing in here, too. But what he's really after is what he he says, what entrepreneurism is, or what the entrepreneur does, is to create new combinations. Like, he emphasizes the entrepreneur is not an inventor. That what the entrepreneur does is to bring existing things together in new arrangements. An assembler— an, an assembler arranger. in that sense, exactly. You know, like you take this invention and this labor force and this uh, natural resource and you put them together in a new a new combination. So we're, we're in some ways working with this notion of new combination, thinking of it in terms of cooperation or Marx's no, notion of cooperation, you know, that we, and we're some ways translating between those two, but also thinking that, you know, valorizing the kinds, of, so thinking about social cooperation or the new forms of cooperation as the substance of what of what this entrepreneur you know what the entrepreneurship of the multitude could be in contrast to the, on, the entrepreneurship of capital, but you know we also want to valorize with that you know so on the one hand we 're thinking towards this um, economic argument that you and I've been doing now for a while you know working on now for a while here, but we 're also thinking to the level of political organizing you know because there too we want to valorize the entrepreneurial forms by which we mean. The kinds of organizations of forces, you know so the creating forms of social cooperation in that sense, the organization of forces in the interests of, of new daring endeavors. Something like that. I mean, that's that's what we're. It's it's clearly a polemical, as you certainly recognize. I mean, we, Tony and I, are f- perfectly aware that that entrepreneurship is the um, in the
0: internet parlance, it's it's a bit of trolling. <laughs>
1: okay, maybe it's something like that. But I mean,
0: <laughs> no, I I think it's very interesting. And one one idea that provoked to me is something that I've been thinking about for a while is in terms of thinking about neoliberal entrepreneurship as this core contradiction. Mm-hmm is that there's this call for everyone to be a self-made entrepreneur, to create the next hot app, to become the next YouTube celebrity, to even, say, be a podcaster for a living. And the reality that, on a systemic level, this is impossible for massive numbers of people to do. And whereas earlier forms of capitalism valorized industrial tycoons, who by definition, obviously, could only be a few men, what seems to, and I use men intentionally yes, there. Course, um, yeah. <laughs> what seems to be happening happening today is, is that these certain forms of entrepreneurial success and independence are both valorized and portrayed as a mass possibility, which it's not at all. Obviously, this illusion is on the one hand core to the system's operation and the maintenance of hegemony, but on the other hand, the contradiction between this idea. You know that that everyone is just going to be basically successfully self-employed, and the reality that that's most people's realities are precisely the opposite. That contradiction seems like an important one.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's quite brilliant. I mean, you do it better than we do, and so I would say that in some ways, what, the way you're describing it, it's the long-standing. Ideology of the Horatio Alger story, but now it's being translated as if it were not just what we call it an abstract possibility, but the real concrete possibility of everyone. You know that's the way it's, it's now presented the neoliberal thing, which does, as you say, completely heighten the contradiction of it. I, I think one might, and, and maybe Tony and I do this too, to a certain extent, that one might try to work with the neoliberal notions of freedom in the same way. Neoliberal ideology is all about freedom. And, and constantly talking about freedom, constantly talking about freedom while, while creating systems that are necessarily systems of unfreedom, you know, so that, that you might work it in the same way. Like, could we take over and redeploy the notion of freedom that is so core to the ideology of neoliberalism the same way that one might take over the notion of entrepreneurialism? that is similarly core to the neoliberal ideology and redeploy it i mean obviously redeploy it not just i hope listeners or readers don't imagine us just somehow preserving the same notion and calling it our own because that obviously is no no one I, can't do that yeah. we've been
0: talking a lot about republic republican freedom <laughs> right. on the podcast recently it seems like there are two at least two core contradictions here in terms of this notion that neoliberal capitalism is about freedom and what's meant by freedom on some level is small government and thus no government to infringe on one's freedom. It's obviously mythical on at least two counts. One because the state has only become a more important guarantor of capitalist rule by protecting markets from any sort of democratic governance under neoliberalism. And then two because state repression has become a more potent force than ever, whether we look at mass incarceration, border militarization, or military power; those sorts of obvious state repression are the systematic corollary to a market order that's not that's not really laissez-faire, but that actively protects capitalism from popular control. So this is where I differ with some people who say there's like a rollback of the state in one direction on this on the social and economic direction, and a roll uh, rolling out of of repression because it's really just like a reconfiguration of the entire the the entire state market relationship. So, I guess my question is what role does does repression serve under the contemporary system, the system we live under that moves that protects the movement of massive amounts of capital while also necessitating the massive movement of people but creating these powerful institutions to control and discipline those people's movement. What is that all about? What And what does it reveal about the changing relationship between state and private power?
1: Oh, that seems like a really hard question. I mean, I, I, well, just because <laughs> I, I can't, it seems to me that the four forms and forces of repression have so many purposes. You know, in the way we were talking a little bit earlier, there are, you know, increasing mechanisms of surveillance and, on freedoms at work and, and exploitations but then uh, but then you're also then giving examples that at, at now now we're really talking at a much larger level about the forced migrations of peoples in terms of both military and uh, migration policing I would love to be able to this is what you're asking for is something I would love to be able to do but I don't think nothing is is to be able to somehow have a, a coherent general logic. Of state and capitalist repression, but I don't. I, I guess I'm not. I, I at least, in the way I'm seeing it right now, as we're talking, I, I'm I'm only seeing uh, what should we call it? Like numerous points of its application, rather than a general logic of it.
0: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Democracy's Capital, Black Political Power in Washington, D.C. by Lauren Perlman. From its 1790 founding until 1974, Washington, D.C., capital of the land of the free, lacked democratically elected city leadership. Fed up with governance dictated by white stakeholders, federal officials, and unelected representatives, local D.C. activists catalyzed a new phase of the fight for home rule. Amid the upheavals of the 1960s, they gave expression to the frustrations of black residents and wrestled for control of their city. Bringing together histories of the carceral and welfare states, as well as the civil rights and Black power movements, democracy's capital narrates this struggle for self-determination in the nation's capital. It captures the transition from Black protest to Black political power under the Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon administrations and against the backdrop of local battles over the war on poverty and the war on crime. Through intense clashes over funds and programming, Washington residents pushed for greater participatory democracy and community control. However, the anti-crime apparatus built by the Johnson and Nixon administrations curbed efforts to achieve true home rule, laying the foundation for the next 50 years of D.C. governance. Democracy's capital... Black Political Power in Washington, D.C. by Lauren Perlman. Out now from University of North Carolina Press's Justice, Power, and Politics series. You look at two Marxist concepts that might help us describe how capitalism pillages the commons today. One is primitive accumulation, which... I've discussed with people a few different times, I think, on this podcast. And the other I don't think I've ever discussed, uh, which is formal subsumption. And you write that one shortcoming of using primitive accumulation as a framework is that in emphasizing capitalism's constant reliance on raw theft beyond labor exploitation, on expropriation, that that this risks obscuring how value is extracted I guess simultaneously within the system and outside the system today in ways that are distinct from the sort of primitive accumulation that was historically foundational to capitalism. That's sort of dense, so I guess to put it in more simple terms, you seem to argue that exploitation and expropriation are or have become more intertwined and less distinct, if I have that right. But yeah. by contrast you write that the concept of formal subsumption whereby capitalism incorporates non-capitalist labor practices to extract value from them is more useful. Explain these two concepts and what what they each elucidate about the way the system has operated historically and and how it operates today.
1: Yeah, so it's um the on the on the first about primitive accumulation. So let me just step back. I, I People can have patience if they're all Marx scholars, but um, but Marx <laughs> means by primitive accumulation the processes. He's only talking about England, as thinking of it as representative of what will happen elsewhere. Um, the processes that made possible capitalist production. You know, before capitalist production could take place, he's saying there had to be first the construction of two classes. You know, you had to first get a class of people who had nothing to sell but their labor power, who could then work. In the industrial factories, and then you also had to have this massive concentration of wealth at the other side. And so then he talked about the the various processes, which involved certain kinds of, I mean, theft in many ways, especially in the colonial context. Certain kind of theft, uh, enclosures of of common lands, these other forms of theft. So the this is the way Marx thought of it, or or at least one could easily read Marx as saying that it's an historical thing that first. There were these forms of theft or these modes of accumulation the accumulation by dispossessing others that 's david harvey's way of saying it that happened and then capitalist production could take place now a lot of people have have uh, a lot of marxists have have pointed out in recent years and and argued that in fact those those uh, processes that marx was talking about previously under the r- rubric of primitive accumulation have in fact continued, you know, that we have various kinds of of this accumulation by dispossession of the kinds of accumulation that don't work through profit, through exploitation of people's labor, but rather by kinds of extraction. I mean, the, the whole extraction discourse fits neatly with this. So if one thinks even about not just in the post-Soviet terrain, you know where the, all these public industries become become private property, but also in the British railroads or any number of other uh, place where the, where the public became private property. And then also, as we were talking about earlier, all these forms of extraction of things that were common that are be, that are become private property. Now the only so that's an excellent I mean I think that's an excellent it's been a, a super rich way of thinking about this that there are ways that that the accumulation of value happens today or that capital rules today. That have an analogy to that period that Marx was talking about. I don't know sixteenth, seventeenth century England. What Tony and I have thought is that it's that it, it risks a bit. I mean, I think it's an initial excellent point. It risks a bit confusing the differences, historical differences between between that period and now, and that that indistinction might pose problems. You know, I thought this is a little bit of a detour, but it, but it's the exact same thing that we're thinking when, you know, we when we talk about the common, we we generally don't talk about it with an S at the end, and this might sound super stupid to people, like why won't you talk about the commons? Everyone talks about the commons, (laughs) Um,
0: and in part, I mean, in part, um, because it seems because it seems to index like the historical common land in England that was enclosed and thus created the foundation for the rise of modern capitalism rather than this more capacious concept that's not stuck in that in that period. Is that, is Ex- that why?
1: Exactly. And it, so on the one hand, it's configured then as a kind of return. You know, like if we could return to that pre-capitalist commons that were enclosed, that would be, you know, posing the political value that way. But also it, it seems to me that it elides... A lot of the hierarchies that were part of those pre-capitalist formations, you know, in Europe and, and, and elsewhere. So it, rather than, you know, that I think we have to, in terms of the common, think about the ways the common is not a political objective to return to, but something actually new to construct, it it goes to similar like I hope you can see how it goes hand in hand with this notion about primitive accumulation. I think that recognizing the ways that P, that that capital accumulates value by by kinds of dispossession that seems great to me, but that one shouldn't pose it in analogy to, because I think that there's it's fundamentally different than the functioning of the accumulation of wealth that happened in the pre-capitalist era. I mean that's I mean that's really what we're and And it doesn't recognize this this is the other thing that you were pointing to at the at the at the outset of this. It shifts the focus away from the kinds of accumulation of value through various labor processes you know now i I think one has to expand the notion of labor as we were talking about it earlier to make to make good on this argument you know to not only think about labor in a wage context. But instead, to think about you know, forms of, um, you know, various forms of exploitation inside and outside of wage relations. So that's when, I mean, that's when the and that's where sh-
0: formal subsum- subsumption comes, comes in.
1: in. Exactly, that's where the formal subsumption comes in. I-, I mean, the term sounds so arcane that people that are not in the Marx Club that it seems a bit comical. I mean, even it's hard to pronounce, I suppose.
0: And it doesn't have like the kind of like. Cool ring to it that a lot of other Marx concepts, Marx, do. Co- exactly. like primitive accumulation, before you even know what that is, you want to know what it means.
1: I guess so, right? And you even mistake the primitive thing to meaning some sort of I don't know what. It, let me give you the thumbnail formal th- formal real subsumption. You know, and he, now now I'm being you know Marx teacher, which so what Marx was interested in here, he was also he was also primarily thinking about it as a stage thing. You know, as a historical stage. He says that at first in capitalist production it takes labor processes that were already existing outside of capitalist relations and then it subsumes them, but it only subsumes them formally. Okay, so what he really means by this is like, say, uh, sugarcane production, uh, a new capitalist venture might might use exactly the same processes that were in a non-capitalist sugar production thing, the same kinds of, uh, I don't know, using machetes, you know, the same labor processes and only internalize them, putting in a wage relationship under capitalist exploitation, you know that's the way it's formal. What Marx is more interested in, some ways, is this notion of a passage to a real subsumption, when the when the very processes themselves are dictated and transformed by capital. You know, so industrial production, for instance, you know there weren't pre-capitalist industrial forms that that capital somehow subsumed it rather. This is the, the what he thinks by the real subsumption is that capital creates its own foundations, it creates its own processes that are part of it. That's what, what's of interest in Marx, and and and, and in some ways, we had so Tony and I had been interested in this some years ago, I, and, and Tony long before that, you know, probably before I was born, had been interested in the <laughs> way that notion of the real subsumption, you know, could be help describe the contemporary society, you know, the ways in which. Capital is coming to envelop all kinds of social forms, and that it's sort of interiorizing its outside. You know, so our very relations are becoming capitalist. You know, that they're all all of the social forms are somehow becoming a part of it. What's been more interesting to me recently, and 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 learning from other authors who have been insisting on this, is that it's really in many cases more helpful to think still about forms of formal subsumption and the ways that they recognize both uh, cultural and historical differences, uh, the way that they create a kind of interplay between capitals inside and outside. I mean, that's what's going on in the formal subsumption. So in any case, that's what we were, when when you started this line of questioning, it was that, that Tony and I had thought that the thinking about the ways in which the beginnings of capital continue today it has seemed more useful to us, rather than thinking about primitive accumulation, to think instead about formal subsumption, this kind of constant interplay between inside and outside of capital being able to make use of things that are invented outside of it and bring it under its own, not only control, but 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 means of extraction.
0: In terms of this argument, I want to play, I guess, like dystopia advocate <laughs> instead of devil's advocate and, and argue that. It seems to me that one potential weakness of the concept of formal assumption is that it might presume that the sort of thing that, that you're analyzing with that concept, like like unpaid digital labor, the, the linking labor that that is extracted to make Google's page rank or, or liking on Facebook, that just to, two very obvious examples that every single person listening has engaged in, it, that it might presume that that sort of unpaid digital labor, for example is a pre-existing non-capitalist form of labor rather than a form of labor that is being created by capitalism. And this touches a bit on something that we discussed earlier in terms of how you square the dominant role played by capitalism, by capitalists, in organizing productive labor with your argument that this labor is relatively autonomous and is being exploited at a distance. Does that make sense?
1: It totally makes sense, but I, I at least it, in at first sight would would only see those two examples as being examples of this real subsumption. I mean, the sense that these, that the forms of labor involved, you know, in in using social media and being the kind of prosumer, you know, consumer and producer at the same time, right, aren't aren't really existing forms outside social or productive forms outside of capital that are being internalized. They they only are created by by capital I mean what in fact I think both of these concepts are useful real and formal and so let me just try both of them you know so that I think the example you were given would be why one needs to think about the real subsumption not as a dystopian future you know like therefore capital's in control of everything and we are completely unfree because even our desires have been produced by capital etc I mean one could go down that as a dystopian route this is an argument that tony and i've tried in a variety of ways for for a long time is to recognize that within capital like without thinking about an outside one has to recognize and construct these spaces or margins of freedom like that it's really from inside that alternatives can arise not it's not required to have a standpoint outside yeah, let's. I mean, uh, for instance, I mean, this is the 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 simple Marx example. I, I think it's useful. You know, where he's, when when Marx is thinking about the overthrow of capital, he's not thinking about social populations that either preexisted it or or have the standpoint outside it and stuff like that. No, it's in fact the social figure that was created by capital did not exist previously. The proletariat never – doesn't have a previous existence. It's it's the invention of capital. That's where the most the most internal point is the one that has the most leverage or – and that can create an alternative. It, it isn't just a repeat of the same. I mean I like this kind of thinking and, and we see it in – we have all kinds of cultural examples of this, you know, sci-fi movies, et cetera, where it seems that capital has so saturated the entire social field – that one can't think outside it. And but it's exactly like the Matrix. <laughs> like like The Matrix or Yeah, right. The Matrix would be a great example. I would but I would I would think that any number of other, you know, the Aliens series or or any number of other ones where you it seems as if right. the corporation controls all and even controls our very own desires. But this is almost a cliche in those kinds of movies now even even there can be born from within it, or that would be the most powerful point and and partly by the kind of logic you were using earlier that the that capital has to, for its own development, provide the tools of thinking differently and acting differently
0: and and this is just to switch like theoretical frameworks briefly, um you draw a lot on. On Foucault and in Foucauldian terms, there can not be absolutely totalizing form of power because power is definitionally the exercise of power on some on another power
1: exactly i mean but and, and you 're right, I mean Foucault loves setting up well loves he 's deeply working with this problematic you know because he will say, for instance, thinking about the prison that the very figure we're invited to liberate was already created by the carceral system itself. You know, so that it can seem like a, a completely internal and dystopian that the delinquent or the inmate is already a subject that is so formed by the surveillance and carceral mechanisms themselves. And yet, and that's where he has to do, you know, the next step, and yet... Like you're saying, yeah, it's not only that there's, a, there's always a margin of freedom or that, f- or that power is always a relation of force, you know, that's always two-sided that way. Like the way Tony and I try to pursue this, this is a slogan, maybe it runs throughout, it takes a bunch of different forms in, in the way we're working through these things, is that resistance is not only not a reaction to power, resistance is actually prior to power. Like that's what, and uh, you know, I I would argue that's true. In and that's also two.
0: you also make that argument as a as a historical argument, not just as a as, as a
1: philosophical one. Yeah, A
0: theoretical point. Like you argue, for example, that the rise of alongside people like Melinda Cooper, that the rise of neoliberalism and financialized capitalism was a reaction to resistance movements of the of the nineteen sixties.
1: Exactly right that would be that's a, that's an excellent historical thing and i think it helps in theorizing neoliberalism to see it as a response as a as a reaction as a counterrevolution
0: and why is that because there are kind of arguments um including you know by thinkers that i find really interesting and compelling in many ways but but i do part with them here who argue that sort of like the new social movements paved the way for the rise of neoliberalism by Playing a role in breaking down the the New Deal order, but but you all and Melinda Cooper and others argue that that's precisely backwards.
1: Right. I mean i I would say I would even back up one time for that argument. I mean that the new Deal, this is I would periodize it this way. I, I mean I hope going back doesn't confuse the matter, but that the uh, that the New Deal order was already a response to the threat. Of of the Soviet Revolution, of its spread, of the CIO and organizing in the U.S., you know, so that the the New Deal was a kind of compromise response. It was, it was let's call it a liberal counter-revolution that created mechanisms of containment, um, and 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 management. That then a, a a response against that a response against that then. Then provides the means, as you're saying, for the uh, you know a revolution in that context, in the context of the not only of the welfare states and variety of the dominant countries, but also a, a so-called uh, liberal international order, guaranteed by U.S. might. That a revolution against that then meets a new counter-revolution in the 1970s, and so that the neoliberal counterrevolution is uh is a further instance of that. I mean, I know that this is talking on a on a pretty wide historical scale, but let me come back to the you know, so uh, I know that you know, Tony and I uh, partly because of the Italian context that you know, we're both thinking about the slogan for us it comes from a um a book from Italian Marxist Mario Tronti written in the 1960s and Tronti's notion here is that the the way he formulated it is that that workers' struggles precede and prefigure the developments of capital.
0: This is uh, operismo, if I'm pronouncing it correctly.
1: It is it is operismo, yes, Operaismo, which yeah, translated as workerism, which could be. And what is yeah, what is meant by that is that I mean a little bit, you know, part of that slogan might be when Marx says things like you know, where there are strikes, machines will follow. You know that in some ways the re- Rebellion of the working class forces capital to develop, and that's what you know. I, I think that I, maybe it intuitively makes sense to to you or to listeners on when thinking about this in the relationship between labor and capital, like that capital, yeah, that strikes. I mean, this is a one instance of it. You know, that strikes can lead to certain forms of. Mechanization as a response, you know, as a retaliation, but as a as a response of containment, et cetera. So in some ways, I would say thinking about that at a much larger scale, but the similar kind of principle, either, you know, both works with this notion about revolutionary forces and the counter-revolutions of neoliberalism, for instance, but it's the exact same logic in which Tony and I have been trying to think the questions about capitalist globalization, you know, that it's really... Internationalisms that preceded revolutionary internationalisms are what capitalist globalization has been a response to, not the other way around. And so when one thinks about one has to trace the various forms of internationalisms, uh, proletarian internationalisms, feminist internationalisms, third world anti-colonial and anti-racist internationalisms, that those are the real – the motor of the processes of globalization – that the present forms of capitalist globalization are really an effort to contain a counter revolution against
0: it really makes sense to me to me generally. But one one example that comes to mind that might complicate it is a foundational one, which is if colonialism creates the world system, if there's no kind of total world system prior to to colonialism, can we theorize? Clo- I guess colonialism would have to be theorized as a reaction to something that's not on a right. That's on not something else that that's like domestic or that's or on a per, European scale. On a European scale. scale, exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. You're absolutely right about that, and I don't. I don't think that that's what I would count that. Or at least my initial instinct is to count that to limit to the way we're posing that question of of globalization. But it's useful, all I mean, this perspective is useful, I think. It's not an absolute it's not absolute, it's in some ways compensatory, I would say. I mean, in each of these cases, what we're trying to identify is the way that the moment of innovation and creation relies on the on the side of the forces of liberation. You know, and that capital is really primarily a force of reaction that, that grafts and repurposes those those innovations for different ends I mean it, part of the idea being I mean this here's the um the encouragement part of it you know which is that you know since we've done it before we can do it again you know part of it is recognizing that we're not uh, victims in this history but in fact in some sense the protagonists that retain that power to do it to do it once more like identifying historically the the locus of Power that can be re dynamized. Does that make sense? As a, I mean, it's it's as a almost as a theoretical principle.
0: Yeah. No. Definitely. I, w- I want to shift gears and talk about property, which is understandably key to your analysis of contemporary capitalism. Locke was an early, maybe the first theorist of private property. I'm I'm not sure, but <laughs> very early, and he he argued that. What was common becomes private when a person mixes their labor with nature, a framework that has been important ever since to legitimating not only property rights, but also settler colonialism from North America to Israel. And I believe that Locke wrote the Constitution for for the Carolinas. If I remember correctly,
1: and Locke had and Locke had the Americas in mind often when he was talking about you know the the um, yeah it, Locke had a had a colonial framework in mind already. You're right with those formulations.
0: But Marx noted the the irony that not so long after Locke, that capitalist property very fundamentally violated Locke's principle because under capitalism, property is not accorded to the producer. Locke is sort of a producerist, and, and, and under capitalism, property is accorded to the owner of the means of production. And you write, quote, The fact that production in contemporary capitalist society is ever more cooperative and socialized strains to the breaking point the link between individual labor and private property promoted by capitalist ideology. Explain Locke's theory, the contradiction that Marx identified, and then how you see that contradiction intensifying or even changing in quality today.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reason I think it's it's useful to talk about Locke in this is I do think that that remains—the that fundamental idea there that, that the right to property derives from labor is something that has remained a core ideological piece— you know that that we believe that almost almost instinctively. You know that that's part of the, the the cultural narrative. You know if you built something, it should be yours. Like if you built something and someone else took it away, that just seems unjust.
0: Well, remember when when, Ob- when Obama said uh, you didn't build that, and that became this Tea, tea Party rallying point.
1: <laughs> right. Well, but I think that it does. I mean, that's a good example, though. Even though about how how much it it's still plays or or even think about, you know, patent law. I mean, what one has to do to get a patent is to demonstrate that it's not something you found. It's that it's something that you're that you in some way produced. I mean, that's you can't get a patent otherwise. So there's some ways that this I would say that there are a lot of ways that that assumption about the relationship between labor and property right Continue, you're absolutely right that this is. uh, Marx loved that kind of uh, that kind of thing, saying things like, you know, we don't have to struggle to, we don't have to struggle to go against, you know, the rights of property because capital's already done that, (laughs) like that because uh, (laughs) it's already made it so that people don't own what they what they make. That's it's almost structurally impossible in a capitalist society to to try to insist on that. The the next step that you were you were posing just seems like uh, I mean it's a like, it's it's a healthy exercise. It's not going to win us any any battles, but just to say, well, if you were to try today to link property rights to pro- acts of production, it would have to stand, extend so generally that in essence the entire society would have to own the products that are produced because no single person produces anything you know you i don't know you think about like even thinking about intellectual property just seems all seems absurd when you at a certain point when you think about it cuz nobody nobody has an idea alone this idea of um of the individual genius is absolutely absurd that what the kinds of intellectual productions are things that are done at at a almost undefinably widespread social scale you know that the only way you can think is to think with others
0: yeah i mean as someone who makes their living producing intellectual property of a sort it's like painfully obvious to in the case of this podcast where everything is just fundamentally about things that I'm reading written by other people which are in turn obviously drawing on just like an infinite number of other texts and thinkers that I'm then processing in conversation with other people
1: Right, and you're yeah, right. That, that seems totally. I mean, that's a great example, and I think it's a very similar thing for pharmaceutical production and for other sorts of scientific productions that the that the network required of producing this. You know, this is when you know we have liked or a number of us have liked Marx's notion of general intellect. You know, which is essentially saying that. That, they, there's a, that there's such a widespread note, accumulation of not only knowledges but intellectual capacities that are, that are essentially social in nature. So it, the exercise you were just doing, which seems great to me starting from Locke, then you say, well, okay, let's pursue that. Like, let's take that seriously. What would it look like today? It would then, if you pursue it to its end, it would mean that there's no way to think about property except at the widest social scale. Like that would be the only just way of assigning the relationship between between productive acts or productive capacities or really you no know, productive circuits really, and the results of it. And so it would have to it would look something completely different. Maybe it wouldn't be property anymore. But do, uh, the the nice thing that that reasoning is you're sort of exploding from the inside that assumptions about the justness of private property, and by pursuing its own logic, making it into something. Or recognizing would have to be something completely different that's one way of going about this argument about I mean really an argument about the common you know what we're we're trying to argue for is that the, really the only the only even possible and rational way for social production to continue is on the basis of the common you know the basis that goes outside of the relations of property.
0: Yeah, that brings me to my next question. Where, in terms of like within the logic of of the theory, I definitely follow the argument, not just of abolishing private property, which of course, like all anti-capitalists want to do, but also making the commons into a form of non-property and abolishing property. Full stop. But I'm not sure I agree with it fully in practice. And, and Here's my question. You, you critique Eleanor... Because
1: Ol- you want to keep your own toothbrush.
0: <laughs> I'm definitely no. not sharing my toothbrush. <laughs> yeah. um, no. I, I, I'm not good either. I have a My question is about more social forms of property. Because you, you critique Eleanor o- o- Ostrom for, quote, insisting that the community that shares access and decision-making must be small and limited by clear boundaries to divide those inside from outside. And what that makes me wonder is whether ownership can be abolished, even if private ownership is done away with, which, of course, it should be. Could it be more useful, perhaps, to think about changing how ownership operates to maximize social ownership and make the boundaries between communities more fluid? I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of indigenous notions of territoriality which are radically less rigid and exclusionary than capitalist private property, but they don't abolish this inside-outside distinction entirely. Or to give a, a different example, social housing, where residents might exercise democratic control over the entirety of a given development and then more autonomous control over their own unit within that development. But if I don't live there in that housing development, I don't have... Much of a say at all because because I'm not a member of that community. What's your take?
1: I mean, that's a. I mean, I I I, I like that way of thinking. And in the, you know, we 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 tried in in an assembly to work through the legal theory arguments about this, and I and I think especially the social housing example goes along with a progressive current. In partly coming from critical legal studies, I mean, I was thinking about Duncan Kennedy makes arguments very similar to what you were just saying about the about the social housing project. Uh, I I certainly wouldn't argue against the two ways you were just thinking about that in any principled way. It does though, like to, to maybe it's helpful for me to start back at the at the most basic level. You know the Ost, the uh, the Eleanor Ostrom argument that you were. Starting with about the limits of the community really at play here is a is a question about the possibilities of democracy and scale that's an argument that's you know that's had many and that's had long fortunes i guess I would say that on the one side are those you know you know progressive left revolutionary left you know, all both of these sides I'm talking about that would argue that Democracy is only possible on the small scale. It's only small, possible even in the face-to-face, or or, or in, within the limits of community. And then there's another side of this that was wants to think about the possibilities of democracy in expansive or unlimited. You know, not universal, but unlimited contexts. I mean, I think that's what's at stake. I guess I'm I'm, I'm bringing this up. I'm not offering a solution here. I'm just. Uh, Trying to point out the um
0: yeah no no it, it's an important- it's an important piece of context and 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 I guess like i mean I, I you make an argument against the term sovereignty, so maybe pretend I'm using a synonym for it that's less has less baggage, but sort of like nest like nested sovereignties that could be less um less exclusionary but operating right. simultaneously on multiple scales
1: that seems like certainly super interesting to pursue. I, it, it makes me, as we're talking, I'm, it, it's uh, also becoming clear to me that I should return to one aspect that of the notion of the common, and even this argument about it, uh, against property that we have, which is that when, though I would put it this way, at, at at base, you know, someone in the first in the course in the first year of law school is going to tell me it's a little more complicated than this. But at base, <laughs> property is involves a involves limited access. And, and a monopoly of decision making. And so correspondingly, the common involves not only open access, you know, there has to be, of course, decision, but also just democratic decision making. Like that this is, and this is something I think that's very important about Ostrom's argument is the she makes clear that it, the, the common's not about, you know, some sort of merely open access, also requires a kind of management. Or if you don't like management, I, I think about it as um, yeah, in terms of decision making. So that's that's partly where the examples you were you were talking about are are grounded. When one is going to either invent new forms of property or invent forms of non-property, there are two important items. Like you were both talking about access. You know, uh, it's not only that the community involved those who live in the housing, but but one could also have kind of porous borders so managing access but the other thing and maybe more crucial thing is about decision making who gets to decide and that's what you're working with too so i and w- and why do uh, i get to decide
0: over a housing project that i don't live in is like my kind of
1: it could right it could be certainly that right that that could certainly be that would be part of the argument for the limited sphere of that decision making there there are various scales on which that that could take place. You know, one of the things I, I've sometimes thought it's helpful to c- conduct this argument about the common in terms of the new municipalist movements. You know, like the um, like the government in Barcelona, various different municipalist movements, and, and so because partly what's at stake there is transforming the sphere of decision making. But it's not. This is where it, where it goes along with your with your example it's not saying that everyone should decide what happens in barcelona it's not that that someone living in in quito should decide what happens in barcelona it's that rather than either private property deciding or public property deciding you know meaning meaning uh, state management there should be some democratic mechanism here within the the limits of the city that do i i guess i'm i'm uh, this might sound to some frustrating, but I'm re- relatively flexible about these questions of scale.
0: <laughs> no, no, um, that, that's uh, it's cool for people I to be that, flexible uh, about these things.
1: <laughs> I just, I think in the way you and I are talking about it, I'm tending towards the bigger. But that's uh, now I'm uh, in some ways retreating to something I said, uh, you know, a half hour ago or something, which is that these theoretical frameworks are not likely to give us ready made solutions what they are good at doing is clarifying what the questions that need to be answered are and so here i think these the you know these two questions are are about the ways of opening access you know there's some ways the sim- simpler one and this the second one is about how to determine how to determine the decision making structures that can that can manage that
0: let's turn to Movements and left power. You periodize left politics in cycles of struggle. The the most recent one, beginning with the squares protests, Occupy in the US, Puerto del Sol in Madrid, Terrier Square in Cairo. And you in turn situate this past cycle of movements within prior histories of the left social movement back governments that took power in Latin America's pink tide. And before that, in the anti- or alter globalization movements of the late 90s. And all of these different periods can in a sense be considered attempts to figure out a way forward after the collapse of communism. And you argue that the movements that are emerging today are the product of each of these kind of distinct moments over the past three decades and, have, and that these movements have undergone a powerful series of transformations over that time. Explain your argument. What sort of left forces you see emerging today, in a general sense, and how they've been changing over the past three decades with the with the rise of of neoliberalism and the collapse of the Soviet Union. I guess as the as, as core pieces of contexts.
1: First of all, I, I think it's helpful to think in terms of cycles of struggle, just to recognize the ways in which. It, well, first of all, just to, to recognize the ways in which. Movements learn from each other, and translate the um, repertoires of practices, also the the aspirations of and modes of communication. You know of movements in a different context. So it's just, I, I think that's good. First of all, as a, as an analytical tool, you know to to recognize, and it's not always that easy, or or uh, let's say it's not an uncontested claim. You know that. Tunisia and Egypt in 2010, 2011, were taken up and redeployed, you know, their their practices, their aspirations, their modes of communication in Spain, in Greece, you know, finally in the U.S., that these movements of squares, like you're saying, have a certain continuity to them. In any case, I, I think it's that that's first of all useful for an analytic. And, and secondly, it's helpful, I think, to recognize the way in which... Local political struggles that are focused primarily on immediate, you know, and local questions can have a extended and even tendentially global effects. You know, so when one talks about a global movement in the in recent decades, it doesn't have to be a coordinated structure where people in the Philippines and people in, in South Asia and people in North America are you know going to meetings and coordinating things together it can instead function through and i think more often does through this these kinds of you know spreading of fires or with a metaphor you know sometimes tony and i were thinking about like the kind of sprint where you pass a baton from somebody who does 100 yards and then another one does you know so that it helps us think about the the larger potential of movements that are that are local so anyway that was all that was all about why talk about cycles of struggle or why to understand the recent history of radical movements in terms of cycles of struggle. I think, though, that your next question, though, I mean, then, then you embed this in that, you know, recognizing the, the shift among them, you know, like what was, were the characteristics of really that brief alter-globalization movements, you know, that might have extended, you know, either from Chiapas in the mid-1990s or from Seattle in 1999, essentially... Ending in in Genoa in, in two thousand and one, uh, you know, extending from that to you know directly after the anti-war movements, or then these this uh, two thousand and eleven cycle that in some ways might be continuing, or the one would have to ask about it. I, I don't know if it. I wouldn't want to put it as a kind of uh, progression narrative, and I'm not sure that this that each of these is better than the last.
0: But each new thing is definitely different. In ways that yeah. are in part because of what has happened before.
1: That's good. Yes, exactly. That's definitely true. I mean, I I do think in 2011 I, I was very much focused on how these were different from the ultra globalization struggles. You know, both for the good and for the bad. I mean, for the good, of course. A, a lot of the problem with these ultra globalization struggles back in 2000, let's say, were you know the the, the uh, there was a lot of criticism from within the movement itself, of the kind of summit hopping, you know, of movement. They were very event-centric. You know, one,
0: one, the global elites are meeting, we're going to fight the cops to try to stop them from meeting.
1: Exactly, or to call attention to it. And so there right. was a kind of nomadism about it that that seemed to make it difficult to focus on the most local issues. And so and so, in, co- in contrast to the nomadism of, of that moment, you know, say of 2000, 2011 was incredibly sedentary like not only they did, they weren't nomadic they refused to move you know the, the the construction of the camp itself was a and which facilitated you know with all the working groups you know think about the the various working groups in in the, in Spain in 2011 or or in the various occupies all had working groups and working about specific lo- local issues about about evictions about sexual violence about you know all all the different ones which seemed like you're saying it, it could be certainly interpreted as a, as a reaction or as a correction you know something like that i i do i do think though i mean this is something that i've been thinking more and more about recently is that there were some ways in which that alter globalization movement was really quite remarkable and important and i would say this for precisely like you were saying the um exactly the thing that was criticized you know this moving from one summit meeting to another i think had an a, an extraordinarily important analytical capability. So the, the people involved in these protests then, they, they of course knew that the, US, you know, that the US military, that Wall Street, that the White House was a factor in all of the various ills of capitalist globalization, but they also knew it wasn't just that. You know, so they weren't protesting every day in front of the White House. What they were doing is they were, they were kind of conducting a thought experiment you know, a collective investigation, kind of co-research to identify the nodes of a new global power structure. You know, so one week they were, you know, with the, with the G8 meeting, another me- week with the WTO, another week with the Free Trade Organization, World Bank and the IMF. You know, so they were each time illuminating a node of this new emerging network. I think that's an important, that was an importantly important theoretical
0: operation. I certainly learned a lot through it. That's was that, that. Is like right. precisely the moment that I was becoming a politically conscious as a teenager.
1: I, I mean, one of the things that that's uh, it's an useful example for me is that the kind of division that one, I mean, I wouldn't say that activists assume this, but the, but from the outside one assumes, which is that you know activists act and intellectuals think. It's a clear demonstration that that's that that's not what goes on, and that the kind of theory that goes on. That the kind of theorizing that goes on together in movements is in many ways working with the same problems and in some ways superior to the kind of theorizing that goes on in libraries. I mean, I like working in libraries and everything, don't get me wrong, but, but it's mm-hmm. uh, to be able to demonstrate the kinds of theoretical advances like that, you know, that it seems like the two of us recognized that, that at that time, you know, it's really something extraordinary. And, and at least it's, it seems an important principle to me that's demonstrated by that.
0: You look to movements as not ready-made models for governance, but as things that might teach us something about how the left should should govern and, and do politics. And you argue that representation is, is always false to its promise because there's always too much distance between the represented and and their representative, and you point to movements like Occupy as an example of a more kind of imminent democratic governance. But I wonder if the imminent form of governance that you call for isn't always similarly illusory, if for kind of opposite reasons maybe. In Occupy, for example, the General Assembly, which was very much celebrated at the time as a site of pure direct democracy, was, was often a bit of a charade because it was so cumbersome that a lot of decision-making ended up getting made in unaccountable ways behind the scenes by small groups of leaders because there was no structure in place to make decisions accountably. This is something I discussed with, with Jonathan Matthew Smucker who wrote this book Hegemony How-To and who was um, one of these invisible leaders of, of Occupy Wall Street in, in New York.
1: The way, the way Tony and I try to approach this is to say that uh, what seems to get thrown up here is a false question. There, it seems to be that we're given two choices, either an absolute horizontalism, which will be ephemeral and, and relatively ineffective, or the return to some sorts of centralized uh, leadership structures traditional ones which were which would be imagined to be effective and long lasting, I actually think that that latter assumption is not true, but I also think that those aren't our two our, our only two choices i mean that's what that's what Tony and I mean by this that false problem, and so we tried like one way just a framework in thinking about it that we tried with this was was suppose this in terms of a what we need to think about is an inversion of strategy and tactics, and what we mean by it is this that the traditional assumption is, is that leadership is the only capable actor to be author of strategy, to see far, to plan the long term, to think coherently about the whole. And instead, tactics can be done by the base, but sometimes thought of in a single, in a syndicalist, you know, in a union structure, or by the multitude would be capable of strategy, thinking locally, short term, etc., what we think is, is we need to invert that structure. So it's not that that there needs to be an abolition of all leadership structures, but that leadership should only be tactical, meaning that it should be uh, for specific purposes and for on a short-term basis. But instead, and that seems to me, I, actually, you can think of all kinds of instances where where leadership is deployed tactically, and that seems to make sense. When certain kinds of expertise are required, when uh, speed of decision-making is required, I mean, I, here, here's the stupidest, most banal example. You know, in every demonstration, you need some group who's going to see where are the police, when are they starting to arrest people, what are to do, you know, which street to turn down. You know, that's that, that would be the the smallest example, but think of other instances where you need – expertise or quick decision-making, something like that. The dip, more difficult part of the equation is the other side. How is it that the multitude, that in a democratic way, you can put that another way, this is sort of what I mean by that same sentence, how is it that the multitude could be capable of strategy? How is it that the that the large guiding decisions could be done at a, at a democratic scale? That's really what we mean by, by that strategy should be the task of the multitude, that of course, and like going along with the different works that you were just citing. I mean, of course that involves structure. Of course that involves organization. But it's the task posed is is creating democratic mechanisms for deciding the things that really matter. I don't know. That's another way of you know if if the strategy and tactics sounds too military to you, or or doesn't make sense. Say say that you know there there can be de- punctual decisions but they can be done undemocratically and that, that have to be done undemocratically sometimes in practical cir- circumstances. But the large scale decisions or the, the things that really matter need to be done you know, at a, different, at a different level. And that's what we need to invent modes of organization for.
0: I'm skeptical of, Im- of imminence is, I guess, like that concept.
1: If that's good. If it were only so by imminence here we're referring to uh, horizontality you know like that everyone has an equal a share in decision making structures um at least this makes a difference to me it might not still satisfy your skeptical instinct here which is that it's not it's not a refusal of leadership as such it's rather it's limitation
0: and i agree with i do agree with the argument of of inverting of okay. inverting the strategy tactics i'm totally on board for that and maybe because it's like a theoretical argument of a certain sor- s- sort, that certain points are wielded with a bit of like a hyperbolic hammer. <laughs> but but the uh-huh. I, I guess the notion of abolishing mediation, i.e., representation, i.e., imminence, to me, ah, way, oh, I see what you mean. The, the risk there is that by by pretending that the mediation doesn't exist, which it always which it does and always will, that less accountable forms. Of representation will take root, which is, I think, precisely what happened in Occupy.
1: Right. I was thinking how in Occupy circulated so much that uh, old essay by Joe Freeman uh, about the tyranny of structurelessness. Um, Right. Right. Which, and rightly so, I guess what I would not want to equate democracy with lack of organization or even lack of institution. Mm -hmm. Like, so that, I I mean, I'm. I'm agreeing that structure will really organization. I mean that's another argument Tony and I tried to conduct this in terms of institution, this argument in that book in assembly. The the construction of new forms of institution or thinking institution differently. But these are I'm not sure if we're talking in this if we're talking past each other on this part or not that to say institution or to say structure or to say organization doesn't um that it is possible did, is to construct democratic forms of organization, which don't merely have either explicit or implicit forms of centralization, but this is the old argument. that, I mean, that even in Joe Freeman's essay from uh, from second wave feminist movement is arguing this too. That what what one needs is is uh, explicit structures in order to guard against this tyranny of the clique. You know, of the of the small group that decides in the absence of any of any structures, so I guess I mean this is I, I'm not saying I don't mean to minimize the either audacity or utopianism of it but but what Tony and I are really arguing for is that democratic organization is possible like that that it's not either we have explicit centralized leadership or there's going to be some hidden centralized decision making but that in fact there's it's possible to construct democratic organization
0: you draw in on Judith Butler to argue quote. Precarity and the common are key terms for recognizing the poverty and potential of the multitude in the age of neoliberalism. And I agree that we need to look at the actual conditions of capitalism to identify points of contradiction as potential points of liberation. And I also think there's something very true about Butler's argument in terms of, in the US case, for example, how Bernie Sanders has galvanized people around their shared status as medical and student debtors to demand the abolition of student debt and free single-payer healthcare, I think that maps on pretty well to the argument that Butler makes and that you're drawing from. But I also wonder whether Butler's argument is an also an overcorrection in the sense that there's still incredible power, not just in vulnerability, but but in terms of how we conventionally understand worker power vis-a-vis capital including the power of logistics workers, people laboring in Amazon warehouses or, or driving trucks who collectively have the potential for incredible power to confront capital at strategic nodes, or, or to use a pretty different example, just so it doesn't seem like I'm being super conventional <laughs> or old-fashioned here, teachers, workers who are uniquely well-situated situ- to unite social and economic struggles. But it's not necessarily in the sense of vulnerability that the bowlers talking about, or maybe I'm wrong. In other words, to I guess my question is to close out: Where do you see the the critical contradictions and points where the left is and should be building power?
1: I think the first point and the imp- first important point of these kinds of arguments is to recognize that people are victims, but the, their victimhood is not what's important. They're also source uh, and have already the the means to challenge and overthrow the existing system you know that they already have power so that focusing on their victimhood is is not what even the point of of recognizing precarity and so I, that's what i love about the that aspect of judith butler's argument is to recognize that that when she says the vulnerability it's because it's because that's the space from which interdependence becomes clear and feasible so it's not just it's not that the, the vulnerability is a kind of power bid because it recognizes our common our common, vic, common victimhood it instead is a means for recognizing the power we have like that's what i would say i mean i'm i'm all for conventional forms of strike uh, stoppage at the at the point of production in a variety of ways you know like you're suggesting i think that's true and is super powerful but that shouldn't exclude this is the only thing I would add. It shouldn't exclude those who are not the power of revolt of those who are not there. Like so, here's the the 1960s or 70s version of this. You know, that Piven and Cloward were trying to argue. I was remembering when they were talking about poor people's movements. They were trying to argue that you don't have to be you don't have to be a worker in a factory to be able to stop things. Like that, everybody has the the, the power to stop. Uh, the city, you can you can riot, you can stop, you know, that the they ever-
0: point to welfare, the welfare rights movement.
1: Certainly the welfare rights movement is the next example of that. And this sort of like you're saying, and I think this, it, what, here's my stupid way of saying it is a kind of like uh, equal opportunity of revolution. You know, like, it's not like <laughs> just that one population has, has the power to do it. Like we all do. And that part of what these arguments are good for, I think, is to highlight that fact and, What's required, I think, is some sort of a concert or a mosaic or a way of, of in there all their differences, finding ways of, uh, of these different forms of revolt you know that, that retain their specificity, are able to, together in a kind of concerted way yeah, you know, like I say, forming a mosaic or constellation I'm not sure exactly what the right metaphor is can function together. So anyway, at least that's the way I would try to,, yeah, deploy these arguments is to extend the terrain of struggle and and put it together. I mean, in some ways, that's exactly what Tony and I mean by the concept of multitude, you know, to recognize in this multiplicity, the possibility of acting together politically.
0: Well, Michael Hart, thank you very much. Thank you. Michael Hart teaches political theory in the literature program at Duke University. His latest book, co-written with Antonio Negri, is Assembly. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that what the bourgeoisie therefore produces, above all, are its own gravediggers. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review those reviews help up our rankings or discoverability or searchability or something anyways it supposedly helps introduce us to new listeners but what really and truly does that is you telling your friends on social media in real life whatever about the show why you like it any propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong even a few bucks is a huge help